0: Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and earlier this week, it was International Women's Day. So as a surprise, we're going to be releasing six podcasts in six days, all women. Today on the podcast, we have Chania Rodwell, the Group Finance Director of Vortex Group of Companies. Chania has some extensive experience in the private equity world, and he's fairly new to the equipment rental industry. So I'm quite interested to talk to her about how she got to where she is today and where she fits into the picture in terms of Vortex Group of Companies. Chania, thank you for coming on the podcast. To kick things off, can you talk to me about how you got into the equipment rental industry?
1: Sure. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. Um, So I kind of got into the industry by accident. Uh, My previous role was working for um, MH Carnegie & Co., which is an alternative asset manager Um, run by Mark Carnegie and um, the Vortex Group was one of their investments so I was an investment director there covering a suite of different um, investments and potential investments including early stage fintech financial services also Vortex Group later on so I had an opportunity to see this business and do some work with the team and yeah I could see an opportunity to jump in and Add some value in an executive role, so that's how
0: I ended up working cool. in equipment rental. Cool. And so, what what exactly is your title? Like, where do you fit into the business?
1: Yep. So, I'm my title is a, uh, the group finance director. So, I sit on the board, and I'm responsible for both the um, the financial aspects of the business, but also the um, safety and people parts of the business too. So, essentially, I head up group services.
0: And so, let's go back before vortex then and talk about the, the private equity side so how did you get into that originally
1: so originally i studied math at university so i went to oxford and did that and then wasn't quite sure what i wanted to do so i jumped into accounting so I joined kpmg this is back in london um and did audit there for a few years and then i got to comment over to australia somehow thought audit might be more interesting in australia but wasn't <laughs> Then moved into restructuring and insolvency, which was actually pretty interesting. And then had the opportunity uh, to move across into a turnaround specialised situation fund called Helmsman Capital, which was a joint venture between uh, KPMG and Macquarie Bank. So they had a sort of test fund under that joint venture structure. And then uh, one of the directors there asked me to come across when they raised their second fund and, and, and bought out basically KPMG and Macquarie and became an independent Funds. so that was my first foray into private equity and I was with them for about eight years and then within that time I also did a an executive role um, as a CFO in one of their portfolio companies which was um, an aviation group so I was there as um, CFO for about three years um, <clears throat> and then after that I joined um, MH Carnegie and again an investing role so that's how I kind of Came into PE in the Vortex Group.
0: Okay. And so for the listeners that don't actually have much experience with private equity, so so what is the typical process to actually get funds from a private mm-hmm. equity fund itself?
1: Typically, either you will be approached by a PE company or you'll approach them, which sounds kind of a no-brainer. Um, private equity companies tend to have a specific focus of industries or things that they you know you like to look at. Um, and sometimes that's explicit in their mandate. Sometimes it's more just a trend that they're seeking to follow. Um, so they may contact you if you fit that sort of profile. Alternatively, if you know, you're looking for money and you, and you ring them up, you know, you, you'll get through to someone in their investment team who will ask you know, what you're looking for. They'll form a quick view as to whether that fits their mandate. Um, and if it does, then you'll go through a process of you know signing confidentiality agreements and then having a, you know, a closer look at your numbers and, and seeing what you know understand the objectives of both parties and what they want to do and what you want to do and how the relationship might work out
0: let's say i am a a, a owner of a rental business and i'm looking to to seek funds because i want to grow my business want to mm-hmm. double in the next five years or whatever the scenario <laughs> might be what are some yep. of the questions i should be asking these funds
1: yeah so the first thing i would be asking is you know what what is their focus yeah, so there's lots of different types of key funds. There's some like, you know, my first fund was a specialised situation fund, which means essentially dealing with distressed businesses. So it could have been a business that was, um, you know, either already gone into some sort of administration process or was close to that. Um, so their their focus was, you know, around buying at value and then doing turnarounds. Other private active funds will be very focused on growth. And they will also look at... Um, certain sizes of business. So some will be, you know, small businesses, some will be, you know, larger, larger corporations like buying out Qantas or whatever. So um, there's you know, a really vast array of, of different sort of P funds. So that's the first question, try and find out, you know, what is their particular interest and focus? They will often have strategic partners that they like to work with as well, who are you know, um, experts in the particular industry that you're working in. Um, so it's worth understanding who they are and, and you know, what they would bring. Um, I think it's important to understand what you want. If, if I'm assuming you're talking in, in the context of a, a sort of owner manager scenario um, business rather than a, a corporatized business already. Um, but, you know, private equity doesn't tend to just, they're not a bank, right? They, they like to have some sort of influence or control or have some view as to how the business you know, is going to grow or become more valuable. I mean, that's that's their job essentially is making you know a good return for their investors on any capital that they've invested. So it, you need to sort of think yourself as to what you know what level of control are you have give giveaway? are these people um, individuals that you want to have a journey with and a partnership with? are they people that can actually add value to your business and the, and the growth plans that you've got? And also you know a really important part of it is, what do you want to do in terms of exit or continuation with the business and how do their plans and your plans fit in with that? And maybe that, you know, you're approaching retirement and you've got this business and you're going, I don't want to leave yet, but I might want to leave in three years. You know, private equity can be a good avenue for that because they will typically have a, you know, fixed term where they want to be in the business and they can call you know, they can align your exit with their exit and that model often works quite well um, provided you've got succession planning and continuity in the business um, going through. So I think, yeah, it's really important to think about what you want out of the relationship and understand that they're not, you know, private equity is not a bank. Um, and if they are, I mean, there are some that are sort of more debt focused, but if they're acting a bank in a debt focused, they will be very expensive. So yeah, you, yeah, they're, they're a good source. I think when you've got a private equity fund that you, you work well with and you bond with and have alignment in terms of what you're doing, it can be an extremely powerful partnership. When it doesn't work is if you're a if you're an owner that doesn't really want to let go of control and you still want to run things the way you've always run them, um, you know that that becomes difficult.
0: Yeah, I can imagine not sort of aligning to certain ratios or metrics, and then overnight getting told that you have to work towards these metrics, and then you arguing with someone and then not really understanding like the whole relationship side i think it can be challenging for people like it's not
1: yeah i mean that is probably a higher level than that i think it's you know it's not so much you suddenly become they're your boss and you have they have to do it it's it's, it's, do you have the same vision as to where the business is going to go and are you going to do that together or do you have very different views as to you know how this is going to be run i think corporatization of a business is a very strong theme in private equity run. If you're taking particularly from an owner managed thing, it's, you know, bringing in systems and controls that mean it's scalable. Um, you know, and if you're someone who's been the boss and run the thing forever, it's often quite hard to let go of that and to realize that you're not irreplaceable and that, you know, for you to exit or for the business to grow, they need to have less reliance on you as an individual.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? So, yeah, a business owner typically is going to hold the reins for a lot of parts of the operations of the business as well. Absolutely. And, and and that can be a challenge for a, a private equity firm that's trying to grow the business while yeah it, making sure that all the reins aren't locked into one area. So, so how do they typically manage that then?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a lot about relationships and trust. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons I joined the Vortex Group. It's 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 pretty unique in that it's been a roll up of a number of, you know, successful rental businesses um, and and Conher, which is not so much rental, but more um, services. Yeah. But you've got a bunch of entrepreneurs there who are clearly driven um, value based individuals who've grown and built these companies and have managed to come together in a collaborative way and work together. You know, that, that can be pretty unusual, um, but really inspiring to be able to do that, you know. So, you know, you, I think your question was, well, how do you do that? It's, you know, there's a there's a high level of respect of the talent on the board and the partnership that the, that the business has with, you know, Mark Carnegie and Stephen Donnelly and Andrew Aiken And, um, you know, they can see the value that they can bring, but it's also, I think, the discipline of the board not to get involved on an operational level and let people who've got the skills use the skills that they've got and to trust them to do that so I think it's as long as everyone's clear on what their role is and that we're all aligned on you know at the end game and, and the grace that and the strategy then it works really well
0: yeah and it, since you were involved on the the PE side previously now you're involved in the business like what what was the evolution of the business when that you've seen over time? Like, you mentioned that it was split out into separate businesses and then it merged. Was it like, what, what's what's happened within the group?
1: Yeah, so the original investment, um, the, the, the earliest investments was uh, investment in uh, mobile dewatering in, in WA and Vortex Hire in uh, Newcastle, which was um, James Sebson's, um, Gil Milton's businesses. So they were emerged to become Pumps United. <clears throat> and then we, we invested in... Um, in the Rhino FSD, which was Gary Radford's um, power business, so that was an earlier stage business that um, growing very fast, um, and then so that was merged in with the Pump United business, and then um, in 2019 we also brought on board the Conher business, which is it does works in biosolids and desludging, um, you know, working a lot with councils and governments and um, doing transport and, and do sludging of you know um, sewage and those sort of areas. So um, that was the latest to bring on. So I think, yeah, when we did that, we've also brought on the brand for Vortex Group, which you know recognized Gill's, you know, original brand, but also we've retained the brands of the individual services as well. And I think you know it's important to us that those brands did have a life and a future um, because of the quality of, of the offering that they all have. So um, rather than just sort of bring one to Vortex Group and delete the history. We've said we're proud of the history, we're proud of the executives that are in the business. You know, they're proud of the services and the expertise that we can offer. And, you know, we wanted those brands to continue within the Vortex Group family, if you like.
0: Mm, that's quite amazing. And how do you control the culture then? Like if you've got those, you've merged like three or four different businesses. Is it a matter mm-hmm. of like one person instilling culture and in- put it in it throughout or is it like how do you sort of manage that? I don't think you can control culture.
1: I think you can influence it. And I think with any any um culture it's going to be influenced by your leadership team, um, the way you act and the way you behave and the way you treat people. So I think, you know, we're blessed in the in the people that we have in the business that they're not only experts in what they do and you know the best in the industry we believe that they're also genuinely very decent people you know with a very you know high ethical standing so i think provided you're getting enough exposure to those people amongst the group then that will rub off i think the places we found where we struggled more is where people are not necessarily exposed to that to the same level so we've got cultural pockets throughout the country and we did a, you know, employee engagement survey last year to identify areas that we need to work on and areas that we don't. And, you know, we also, you know, take very seriously the importance of the culture of our business and where people are not aligned, you know, they often don't work out in our business. You know, we, we need to make sure that we have a team that, that fits within, you know, where we want to go and are on the bus, if you like. Um, but it's a great place to work. So, you know, from that perspective, it's it's a pretty fun journey.
0: Yeah, I think like for me, it's always about trying to have a larger company or a medium sized company, but keeping that small business culture. And I think that's very hard for a lot of businesses as they mm-hmm. get bigger, the The management team gets bigger and the, they almost becomes little silos in the business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of, or any business goes through, not just in, in hire and rental. No, I agree and and we you know, we
1: have you know we have values that we live by and we do these we call what we call the love awards which are living our values awards which we you know we celebrate people within our team who have demonstrated you know um their appreciation of those values and and acting out according to those so know yeah, that's what you can do on a sort of corporate level just being um focused on that but i think you're right i think whether you're in silos like that, or even if you're in a KPMG, you, you know, on different floors, they're gonna have a different culture, right? You're gonna have a culture within your, your little niches. I think the trick is to understand what is the broader vision and the values and, and, and the things that we believe in and the things that we don't tolerate and the things that we do tolerate and, and to, you know, to be lead, you know, to show that by example um, throughout the leadership team. So, you know, I don't just mean senior leadership, I mean, and our branch managers as well and, you know, throughout that that
0: sort of process yeah i feel sorry for people that have come on to new businesses during during covid where they've been restricted to online only and i think it's mm, like trying tough. to learn the culture or learn the business or learn the just the values of the organisation can be quite challenging although you do have mark snooker who puts all these masks and costumes <laughs> on so i think he builds his own culture but it's, uh, I, feel, I do it's feel sorry for the morale up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Honestly, well, I
1: think COVID's been a challenge for any business, whether you're, whether you're new to the business or you've been there a long time. I mean, I'm in Perth at the moment. It's the first time I've been able to get over and over a year. And it's, you know, in that time, we've built a whole new branch. And, you know, Clint's doing amazing stuff over here. It's so great to just see what they can do. And it, you can't pick all that up on teams, right? You can't walk around and see how they've laid things out and how people are feeling and all that stuff. And, you know the amazing things he's doing to motivate people over here and, you know, going along to their toolbox talks and all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's really hard to do that online. So I'm hoping this year is going to be much cleaner for everyone.
0: Yeah. Well, wow. yeah, you've really achieved a lot. So, so in terms of being a female leader, because it's international women's day on, on Monday, mm-hmm. I just wanted to talk a little bit about what maybe some of the barriers that you've faced in your career today.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a hard one. I, I've not, you know, I can't think of specific circumstances where I was someone I, you know, I felt I, I didn't get a role because the man did or anything like that. So I don't, yeah, you know, I don't think there have been conscious or, or you know, or very clear barriers in, in that way. I, I, I do believe, though, that, you know, subconscious bias is a real thing. And I think if you look around the room half the time and you look at the people in it and you think, you know, just by the level of probability, they can't all be the best people in the room if they all look the same, right? Um, um, and yeah, I, I did, I've done a lot of work around diversity in the private equity industry. So I, I, I was a foundation member of their um, the Australian Investment Council's Diversity Committee. Um, and when I joined the industry, you know, over a decade ago now, I could literally only find 10 women in the industry. Um, you know and you and you can't say that is because there's only ten women that were good enough to be in private equity, right? So these things play out. Um, and I'm sure in many instances it wasn't because you know there was a, a deliberate attempt not to include women. I think these things are more nuanced. it's around you know women not applying in a lot of cases because of what they perceive a culture to be. But I think there is also, you know, a big, a big element of when you meet someone, you may, you know, 90% of your viewers formed within three seconds of meeting them, right? And, you know, you, you just got to have to look at, uh, you know, broader ways that people talk about people. And, you know, if you think about a doctor, it's a man and all that stuff, right? It's, it's, it is a real thing. Um, so, you know, I don't think as I go through my career, I can pinpoint a time where I've gone yeah, I've been deliberately discriminated against, but I think there is always that subconscious bias, you know, in your everyday work. Um, and I think, you know, that that plays, there is a part with the women as well, I think, that you know, a belief in yourself and the way you put yourself forward and, you know, that whole imposter syndrome thing, you know, I think that is real for both men and women. I think, you know, a lot of women just say, oh, you know, I feel like I don't belong. And I think a lot of men feel that as well. I think probably the distinction I would make is that how we demonstrate that so you know i think for men's feeling a bit inadequate in the world they'll probably talk themselves up whereas a woman will probably just opt out or not put their hand up so um yeah i don't know if that answers the question
0: no that's a really good answer and i think it's a really good way of looking at it where sometimes people don't even realize they're doing it like it's just unconscious yeah,
1: and as I, you mentioned. I, in that yeah in that work i do with. um the diversity council, you had the head of um, HR, global HR for one of the big four accounting firms. And she talked to us and I won't say which one it was, but she talked to us about the journey she'd gone through around um, bias within their own firm. And they were, it was just outright denial that it was true for a long time until she should show them all the statistics around, around the pay gaps and, you know, the, the promotions and, with actual real data around these people had the same skills and and then eventually you know people you know got on board and they accepted it but it's it's i say it's, it's it is subconscious i don't think people deliberately you know most of the time people are nice people right they don't sit there and go oh i don't want to have women in my group or whatever but they just tend to see that role is a man's role right and if you talk to people about well number of industries a pointed question I've asked throughout my priority career is when I go into industry and there's no women in the job in the in the business I go, you know, where are the women and they go, Oh, this isn't a good industry for women. And it's like, well what industry is good for women, <laughs> right? childcare or you know nursing or what you know. But you know, you get the same response across a number of industries. So that's that's it playing out, right?
0: No, for sure. Definitely wow. so so then what advice would you give to young women that are entering a male dominated industry then?
1: Well, if that male dominated industry is the higher industry, I would say come and apply to join Vortex Group, (laughs) number one. Um, If it's more generally, I think just you've got to be in it to win it. You know, if there's a whole bunch of men, it doesn't mean that you won't be welcome. Um, so don't, I mean I think that was the key takeout for the work I did in diversity and project is that so many of the firms were desperately wanting women to join but they found it so hard to actually attract them into the industry or recruit them or you know when they got them, you know to their credit most of them would stay but um, you know if you don't apply you don't you're not going to be in it right so um, so be bold have a go um, I think the other thing that I've you know I, I, I've been in you know male-dominated environments for most of my life even in university there were probably there were more gay men doing maths in my college than there were women right so that gives you an idea of how few women there were and then you know moving into private equity was obviously another area where it was very heavily male-dominated and I, I've I got a lot of energy out of um, being involved in female groups outside of work whether it be you know an acapella group or a yeah, the diversity group or more recently I've been involved in a women's shelter, you know, locally to where I live. And, you know, I find that incredibly rewarding um, working with some really inspiring females outside of, you know, that, cause like, you can get fatiguing, right? If you're spending mm. you know, 90% of your life in rooms with men all the time, you kind of, I don't know, you miss a bit of <laughs> the sisterhood, <Yeah>. right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that is true. And I think I saw stats around, the productivity gains when you've got, uh, I think, what is it? I think it was so in a in a workshop environment where there's there's more than three. I think it actually they they had facts where it actually increased the productivity. I think it was it was two, then that the women were actually going against each other. And if it was three, then they actually started working together and actually creating diversity in the workplace. So. Uh, there's a study oh, there's, there's
1: some there's, yeah, there's some really interesting reading about all those. Studies. It's the same with boards, you know. If you have a token woman, often it doesn't actually work until you've actually got two or three women, you know, because the dynamics, you know, the people dynamics are fascinating with all that. Mm. Yeah, and that's something that you know, um, you know, I spoke a lot with Mark Carnegie about. You know, he's his take on it is very much about can we talk about collective intelligence rather than diversity, you know, and um, you know. Again, the studies around that are compelling. If you have people from different backgrounds, that you are going to get, you know, much better returns. Um, you're going to get much better more, you know, much better outcomes um, than if you have a homogenous group of people. And that's not just around gender; it's around background, it's around age, it's around race. It's you know all those things.
0: Um, mm. Yeah, I think it's important. So then you mentioned if uh, if there was any women in hire that were looking for for work they should they should definitely potentially look at applying for vortex so what are some <laughs> of the the things that vortex group has in place to continually improve diversity
1: well oh, listen we're not a i'll be honest we're not a big group so we don't have a whole bunch of formal diversity initiatives but i think culturally we are very supportive of you know people from diverse backgrounds whether it be gender whether it be disability whether it be indigenous whether you know any of that stuff i think you know uh, you know, Gil is our head of operations, and he's a vegan. So you know, I don't know if that counts as diversity or not. But um, but you know, we do we do actively look for women when we're recruiting. You know, you're not allowed to say you know women you know apply only because you're discriminating against men. Then, but you know, we're certainly um, always keen to see more women in our workforce. We you know I think we've got obviously myself in a leadership role on the board you know, we've got female branch managers, you know, we've just reproach, promoted one, um, Kerry Holloway, just last month. So, you know, we are very interested in, in um, having women in those leadership roles um, and supporting them throughout their careers and whatever opportunities that that there are in the Vortex group, you know.
0: Well, I actually had a recruiter on the podcast uh, probably a month ago, maybe a bit longer, and mm. we were talking about different companies and whatnot and she actually mentioned that vortex was one of the in her opinion one of the top companies in australia Mm -hmm. in in hire that focused on on women so that's a bit of a uh, yeah i mean if you look at
1: our recruitment you know over the last year we've had we have had you know a decent crack at it um but i and there's always there's always room to improve. i can't say i look across the
0: vortex group and say we've got enough women you know Mm, that's awesome and so i think it also needs to be like you mentioned before about if you don't apply, then you, you don't have a chance of getting the job. I think a lot of women are sometimes just intimidated by the, it's like going on a construction site that, 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 oh, it's a man's world. I don't want to get intimidated by them. And so I think it needs to become more apparent that like, that there is a lot of jobs out there, that there's a lot of opportunity out there and, and people want women in those roles as well. And I think the more that people talk about it and the more opportunities, the more companies Mention this, I think it really creates a lot of opportunities for both the companies to help increase their Mm. diversity and to actually create more awareness for women in the industry.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the studies have shown that women tend to put themselves forward in a different way as well. I mean, you saw that in PE, right? The men would be going and say, I have wanted to run a PE firm since I was five, and this is all the things that I've done to say that I'm going to be the best PE guy ever, right? Whereas the women will look at the job description and go, Oh, I've probably only got 98% of that. I haven't got the last 2%, so I won't apply, you know, and they'll they'll list their qualifications rather than, you know, their achievements, if that makes sense, or, you know, the things that they've been able to do or they sell themselves in a different way. You know, I think, yeah, and you can take the, you can take the names off and you can tell which is a female, which is a male by the way they, they present themselves.
0: That's interesting. I, I, I don't So they, 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 they look at their qualifications rather than their achievements. There's obviously a psychology- They want to back themselves, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like yeah. saying,
1: look, I am, you know, you should recruit me because I've got all the things that you could possibly want. But, you know, the flip side is, whereas I think the men tend to be like, oh, I've got 50%, I'll,
0: I'll, I'll go, you know. So then, look, this this mentality and, 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 and where you got to today. Who do you think really played a big influence in your career from a, a mentor perspective?
1: So I can probably think of three people. Um, and I'll probably try and focus more on why they're an influence rather than individuals because they're not from the higher industry but um, the first was Scott Kershaw so he was one of the partners at KPMG who I worked for and you know he gave me a lot of really interesting work Um, so that was you know essentially going and doing investigating accounting reviews of businesses that were failing and so you'd go and do a quick and dirty in a couple of weeks and then Tell the lenders what they should do and whether they should support them or um, or not. Um, so, uh, you know, why was he good? He was good because he had the, a great balance of, you know, give me enough um, leverage to do what I need to do without controlling me, but not so much rope that I'd hang myself. So, from that perspective, he was, you know, he's really good at building my confidence and just saying, you can do that, you know, off you go. Um, Learning me do it so I think that was a good learning point for me he was also my avenue into private equity because he was the one who asked me to join Helmsman and I think the other learning from him was just he was the sort of guy that he would go in a meeting with a client and he would know what the client would want before the client did <laughs> so he was proactively responding you know so uh, that was um, really um, impressive I thought um, the next one is a guy called Ian van der Beek who was the CEO of originally Brindabella Airlines and then later on, we brought him to run the Curry Kenny Aviation Group, which became the Aviator Group where I was a CFO. So, you know, I, I again, I was in the private equity side of, you know, we were an investor in that business. Um, and I think when I, I brought him on as effectively found him and, and got him on as um, CEO and he basically said, you know, you, I want you to come and be the CFO. Which you know wasn't something that had ever occurred to me. That was something I had the skill set to do, or um, would be good at. And he just gave me the confidence to say, "Well, you know, I don't really want to do this role unless you're going to do that role." So, um, and I did it, and I did it well. And you know, you know, we're lifelong friends, and um, you know, I think we worked very good as a partnership as well, um, very well as a partnership. He, you know. You felt, I felt like I was valued in, you know, the counsel I was giving him and also felt, you know, a strong part of the team and, um, you know, I had, a, I had a good seat at the table. So that was, that was um, really great. And then the third one would be uh, Mark Carnegie. Um, so, you know, incredibly um, impressive individual, you know, one of the sharpest minds you'll meet, incredibly well read, very generous um, and you know, he's not—he's got that unique balance of experience and knowledge, but also, you know, sees the people side of things. Um, he's not just about numbers and the outcome. He understands that you know people's lives and behavioural dynamics play such a big influence on outcomes. Um, and as I say, he's, he's also an incredibly generous um, person as well. Um, that most people. know wouldn't know about that gives a lot to charity and is interested in impact investing and um thinks very deeply about um his personal impacts on the world and on the people around him so you know he's been a you know it's been a privilege to work with him Um, and i think you know again with both him and Ian, you know very proactive in not just mentoring me but sponsoring me as well and I, i don't know if people know the distinction between that i think typically mentors are the people that you kind of Go and whinge too, but sponsors are people who will actually help you in terms of getting roles and promoting you, um, you know, more broadly. So I think both of those those people have been, you know, important influences in my in my career. From that perspective.
0: Well, wow. what what people to be associated with, and I guess going along on your career with, and I, and I assume having those influences from people like that gives you a certain perspective when you are managing other people as well on the way that you'll be sort of guiding them as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean life's pretty short, right? So it's important that you spend as much of your time in positive inferences than negative ones. And yeah, I've been I've been lucky with the people that I have had along the journey.
0: And so if you could give yourself your younger self some advice, what would you say?
1: Yeah, it's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would I'd probably say look after yourself a bit better. I think it's easy to beat yourself up. You know you know it's, people tend not to be as kind to themselves as they might be to other people. So that's probably one of the, the learning points and then probably be a bit braver about some of the things. I think it's easy to talk yourself out of taking risks sometimes, whereas you know if you just think about things less like and just do them you know, you, you might have a different outcome. So I think those are probably two things that I would, you know, say to myself, don't worry so much, just go and do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you only learn that through life experience. Like you, you, let's say you're talking yourself out of something and then eventually you do it and you're like, well, that wasn't that hard. Like, oh, I don't
1: know. I think that's why I surround myself with people who are doers because they just inspire me so much. They're just, you know, yeah, you know, just look at the executives in this business, they're, these are the entrepreneurial types are a different breed and they are just, you know, they're very inspiring people.
0: Yeah. And I, they, they bring a certain energy, I think, as well. A certain Absolutely. energy that that like is almost like rubbed off on other people. And, and has then, that can do
1: and- attitude. And, you know, it will happen and it does happen. It's just it's great,
0: great mm. to be part of. Yeah, I was, I was actually listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, he was an angel investor and he was talking... He had the, he said this quote, which really resonated with me, which he said, most people when they hear an idea or they talk about something, they often talk about like why it won't work. And mm, and he, he he said that he tries to flip it and say, well, how can this idea change the world? And it's, mm. it's a very big statement, but that really resonated with me because it, it, it really... I think almost everyone sometimes just always sees the negative. Like they're like, well, oh, that's not going to work because of this. That's not going to work mm. because of this. And I think people that are very motivated and, and are driven in that, in that sense that you described before are always thinking, all right, look, we've got all these challenges, but if we do this, then this is going to achieve this goal and we can change this practice and this job or this, these people or whatever it might be. And I think it's a really good mindset to have. And if you can surround yourself with those people, it goes a long way for you both personally and professionally.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: And so with all that in mind, how do you define success? And was there really a defining moment where you really knew, all right, my career is, is sort of taking it to the next level. I, I can back myself or whatnot.
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's a very hard question. <laughs> um, I mean, for there to be, be a defining moment that kind of assumes that you think you've been successful. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not someone who's ever been particularly motivated by, you know, money or status or power and those sort of things. I get I kind of I get more motivated by the difference that I think I have or I haven't made. Um, so for me, you know, you know it's really important to me that the Vortex group does well um, and that you know for all the stakeholders that's you know the staff and shareholders the management team and you know, the customers all of that and, you know for me you know if we're doing a good job then this business will grow you know it will change ownership at one stage but that's you know that's not the be all and end all it's about having a business that you know is sustainable in the longer term and will you know often you'll see several you know private equity owners in these back businesses because Again, like I was saying before, they'll have their different sectors and some will be small and some will be bigger and then there'll be another one that's bigger. And you know, to see the vortex group growing through that would be, would be really amazing. Um, and I think you know, more broadly for me, you know, I think longer term you know, roles where I think I can be making a difference more broadly, whether it be the people, the environment or you know, sustainability, those sort of things, I think uh, the areas that I would like to be making a difference uh, longer term but you know for now I think if we can make the 4-6 group it's something amazing I think that would be very very re- rewarding
0: yeah well it sounds like you're on the right trajectory so who knows what the next two three four five years might look like and watch this space <laughs> <laughs> all right well look I really want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast
1: no oh, thanks for inviting me it's a pleasure
0: Please like, share and follow the Rental Journal podcast and I'll see everyone in next week's episode.